One Week Season. Circle fam, welcome to the week four Tuesday night inner circle segment. I guess we don't have a fancy name for this yet. We will need to come up with a fancy name for it, but we don't have a fancy name, but we've got some really good content this week. We actually have two pretty distinct things I want to talk about this week. One of them is I want to take a look back at week three. I want to take a look at my process, my approach what I felt was the best path to first place and look at not a results, not not through a results-based lens necessarily, but I want to look at some of the scoring from this last week from individual players to better help us understand where scoring comes from and why we're approaching slates the way we approach them. Then I want to talk about the idea of the scores you're targeting at different price points. Any of you who were on Twitter last week might know where that discussion is headed. We will get to all that a little bit later, and then we'll get to your guys' questions at the end. So let's see if we can keep this to about 45 minutes and leave plenty of time for questions. We'll see how we do. So this last week, one of the things that if you guys were on the site throughout the week, you probably noticed that by the time we hit the player grid, I was focused on these cheaper quarterback-led stacks. So one of the things that I mentioned when I was talking about Daniel Jones at 5,800 and Matt Ryan at 5,400, Jared Goff at 5,200, Trevor Lawrence at 5,500, all of this on DraftKings in week three, I mentioned that we should keep in mind that Matthew Stafford was only 6,300. Matthew Stafford's right there. So if you're thinking about things just in binary terms, in terms of which quarterback scores more points, Matthew Stafford is by far the favorite to outscore those guys. And the 1K in salary that you save by getting to down to Trevor Lawrence or Matt or Jared Goff or whoever it might be, probably, you know, you take out salary multipliers at that point because we're also looking at who has the most upside, who's likely to put up a 35-point game, Jared Goff or Matthew Stafford, in the particular matchup and game environment that Matthew Stafford was in. And so you start thinking about, well, the better play is Matthew Stafford because I can figure out how to how to take this 1K in savings, right, on Matthew Stafford and, and somewhere else save that little bit of extra money to get up to Matthew Stafford. But we also want to think of things in terms of not just individual players, but what we're betting on as a whole. So when we looked through that lens, what are you going to do for Matthew Stafford pairing? Well, you could go Matthew Stafford and Robert Woods and Tyler Higby. Robert Woods was 5,700. Tyler Higby was 4K. So that becomes relatively affordable. That's 16K in salary. But you compare this to the other stacks you were able to get. Justin Fields plus Darnell Mooney was 9,400. Trevor Lawrence plus LaVisca Chenault plus Marvin Jones was a little bit over 14K in salary. And realistically, Robert Woods is not the player that you want from that Matthew Stafford pairing. Optimally, you want to get up to Cooper Cup, which added another extra 1100 onto the price tag that you're paying there. So up to, I think, 17.1K was what Higby and Cup and Stafford would have ended up costing. And so you see how once you start looking at things through a lens of not just the quarterback, but also the 
entire package you're getting with this quarterback and what you're betting on. And sometimes we start trending a little bit toward these cheaper quarterbacks and these cheaper quarterback-led stacks. Now, obviously, we take on some risk when we do that. We'll talk about that in a little bit of, of specifically why there is inherent risk in taking on these cheaper stacks. And what I mean by that is obviously these are lesser players, but very specifically in terms of price tags, we're taking on a little bit more risk. But we also have to think about what is the best path to first place. So last week, one of the things that I was seeing, as we talked about throughout the week on the site, was that this Seattle-Minnesota game set up really, really, really well for at least two wide receivers from that game to hit, and more likely than not, at most, two wide receivers from that game to hit. Because we know we have a very long history of if DK Metcalf hits, Tyler Lockett's probably disappointing. If Tyler Lockett hits, DK Metcalf is probably disappointing. To a lesser extent with Thielen and Jefferson, that being the case, but if one of them hits... The other one is probably not getting a tournament winning score. It's just the nature of the way these offenses run. They're very concentrated, but they're also not super pass heavy. And so it was a really unique and interesting setup to where you could kind of say, given the likely game environment, given the way that these two teams play in Minnesota and Seattle, it's highly probable that we get two really strong wide receiver scores from this game. And it's highly probable that we get only two, one from each team, which allows you to say, okay, this is a very sharp place to put some money. This is a very sharp place to make a bet. I posted that uh, update in the player grid on Saturday night. I think it was and Josh Morano, who reads the NFL edge. One of the guys who reads the NFL edge, he had been asking me about Thielen or Jefferson. And I posted in the player, or I guess I posted it on discord and I pinned the, I pinned it on discord in the three max single entry thread where I broke down from my thoughts. And I basically said, look, it's basically a 50, 50 toss up between Thielen and Jefferson. I prefer Jefferson because I think he'll be a little bit lower owned and Thielen's path to like a 40-point game, it's hard to draw that up because he's used in a shorter area role, whereas Jefferson can legitimately go for 200 yards and score his touchdowns. And so I prefer Jefferson a little bit more. But what I also laid out was the probability of at least one of them hitting was like 40% or higher. And I ran through all the numbers, right? Because 88 times out of 10 in this game, or probably even nine times out of 10 in this game, one of these two guys is hitting. So if you call it 50-50 between them, you're still getting like a 45% chance by, by just guessing between the two. So then if you say, well, what's the what's the best wide receiver play on this slate that everybody's flocking toward? It was Cooper Cup. And he ended up hitting. But what I said was, you know, even Cooper Cup, it's you could run the GPP ceiling tool, you could look at it however you want. But even Cooper Cup is probably about a 25% chance of hitting a really big game. So yeah, it's a guess between these two guys, but it's a high probability place to put that guess. And so for me, I wanted to try to get as much Metcalf plus Jefferson as I could. The places where I couldn't get them, I wanted to get, where I couldn't get them together, I wanted to get one of them. Now it's hard to get both of them together because if you're betting on quarterback-led stacks in other spots, you're probably going to have a quarterback plus two wide receivers, probably with a wide receiver from the other side. So I had a lot of one-off Jefferson one-off Metcalf. The other place where we were likeliest to get the sorts of scores that could help us to first place in our tournament was at running back at players above, at 5,800 or above, we could say. 5,800 was where Tyson Williams was. 5,800 was where DeAndre Swift was. And so we had Clyde Edwards-Hilaire down at 4,800. But outside of that, everything was kind of like, okay, you're going to have to pay 5,800 or more at running back to get your 
production. So when I started looking at things through that lens, I felt that the highest probability bets were Jefferson and Metcalf and as much of that pairing or as much of those individual plays as I could get. I only put one Thielen roster just to hedge a little bit off of Jefferson, knowing that it could be Thielen. And I put zero Lockett rosters, basically just saying, look, I'm going to place my bet on Metcalf. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'm okay with that process wise because I can't fit these guys on every roster, just the way that that salary worked out. And so if I'm going to have to only put Metcalf on or a Seattle receiver on three or four rosters, I'll, I'll put my money down on Metcalf. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. So we look at scoring from last week. The highest scoring wide receiver was Mike Williams on DraftKings at 36.2 points. He cost 6.4 K in salary. Cooper cup, at 6.8K in salary. And then we have Justin Jefferson and then Emmanuel Sanders, who we'll get to in just a moment. And then we have DK Metcalf. So two of the top five scoring wide receivers. And then at running back, Najee Harris was on two or three of my eight builds. He was the highest scoring running back. And we talked about basically just where are these targets that are being vacated from Deontay Johnson going to go. And we walked through all the reasons why Najee Harris was the guy likely to see those targets. Uh, then we skip over Kareem Hunt, Peyton Barber, Alexander Madison, James Robinson, and we get down to DeAndre Swift and Austin Eckler, who were also on two or three out of my eight builds. And so basically it was like saying, look, this is where I'm going to have to go in order to get the points for first place in these other spots. The Jefferson and Metcalf was doubly awesome because their ownership wasn't high. And so I'm getting a lot of separation from the field if and when these guys hit. So I ended up cashing zero out of eight rosters in spite of the fact that I was moving around my salary specifically to make sure that I could get the running backs I liked the most at 5,800 and above, and specifically to make sure that I could get as much of DK Metcalf and Justin Jefferson as I could. So why did my rosters all finish out of the money this last week? Well, my rosters all finished out of the money this last week because I had a Justin Fields and Dar- Darnell Mooney roster. I had two Trevor Lawrence, LaVisca Chenault, Marvin Jones rosters. I had two Jared Goff and DeAndre Swift and TJ Hawkinson rosters. And I had a da- uh, Daniel Jones roster and a Matt Ryan roster in that game against each other. So basically what I was seeing was the clearest path to first place isn't necessarily paying up at quarterback. Now, Josh Allen ended up, ended up hitting, and I talked about this yesterday on the podcast with Scott Barrett, but as I got deeper into the, you know, when I wrote up my, my DFS interpretation in the NFL Edge, I said, okay, like the game environment in which Josh Allen is going to put up a tournament winning score probably isn't here because Washington probably isn't keeping pace. Now, that was incorrect thinking, and I'll get to that in a moment as well when we get back over to uh, Matthew Stafford and the Rams. Uh, and as I got deeper into the week, I, I kept coming back to Josh Allen. And rather than opening up my my mind a little bit more and saying, okay, what is going on here? Why do I keep coming back to this Josh Allen play? Instead, I was like, well, I already wrote this up in the DFS interpretation as these were the reasons not to go here. And instead of then, you know, what we talked about a week or two ago, when you're thinking negatively, flip that around and think positively. Okay, why can this player hit? Uh, and when you're thinking positively, flip it around and think negatively. Why can this player miss? Uh, instead of doing that, I just said, well, I've already written down that these are the reasons why he could fail. So I'll just skip the, the Josh Allen play. But the knowing that the it was going to be difficult to fit these 
mid to high priced running backs. It was going to be difficult to fit these higher priced wide receivers where I felt there was a lot more certainty and a big edge, especially at wide receiver, a big edge, because not only am I getting high certainty from these players, but also low ownership. And that's a tremendous combination. And so the best way to, and actually let me take a step back there. The more we can lock in certainty on our rosters, so we always talk about embracing uncertainty. That's because you're not going to find certainty at nine spots. And so we start kind of trying to convince ourselves that different plays are certain. But when you have a spot where it's like, okay, there's a 45% chance that Justin Jefferson hits here and he's going to be like five or 4% owned. That's incredible, right? So it's not that Jefferson was going to be the best play on the slate, but just that those points are probably going to be there. And when I find a player, it's, it's why Zandamir and I both had the at least one Vikings on every build rule last year. It's like when you have points that are going to be there, you want to take advantage of them when you can. And so my thought was there's enough uncertainty on the slate that I'm going to prioritize these spots. And there's enough uncertainty on the higher priced quarterback to wide receiver stacks that that's not where I want to prioritize. So let's take a look at that real quickly. What did Josh Allen plus Stefan Diggs get you? Well, Josh Allen got you 40.2 points, but Stefan Diggs, I mean, I, I don't know how far down I have to scroll in the top 50 wide receiver scores to find Stefan Diggs. He put up 12.2 points. Uh, Matthew Stafford, we know Matthew Stafford plus Cooper Cup ended up being the sharpest high-priced stack. Uh, Tom Brady plus Chris Godwin plus Mike Evans, you were getting about 50 points, which you need more than that at the combined price tags you were paying. Justin Herbert plus Mike Williams could get it done. Uh, Kirk Cousins, we were already going to those wide receivers. Uh, then Derek Carr, we start getting down to these cheaper quarterbacks. Uh, Patrick Mahomes, his pa if you paired him with a pass catcher, you're getting nowhere close to first place because his expensive pass catchers disappointed. Ryan Tannehill, if you paired him with, with his expensive wide receivers, you're getting nowhere close there because they disappointed. So we were very close to all of these high-priced quarterbacks with their high-priced pass catchers missing. And again, in the second segment that we're going to get to here, we'll talk about why all of these pricing points matter. So for me, it was the greatest certainty, right? Where, where do I get my path to first place? Well, there's the elements of being different from other people. There's the elements of targeting massive upside, which we know that the best way to get massive upside is through a game environment that blows up because that's where you kind of get these outlandish, unpredictable scores, these scores that are sort of outliers. But the, the certainty of points is one of the starting points that you want to focus on when you're trying to figure out, okay, how does this slate shape up? So if it had been Matthew Stafford and Cooper Cup had been 5,800 or something like that, then it becomes a little bit more like, well, here's the most certainty. Let me focus here. But for me, the most certainty was Look, there's probably outside of Clyde Edward Tillaire, who was going to be really popular. And think about, you know, what he has five or six touchdowns in his career now. And one of them was last week. And without the touchdown, he kind of hurt everybody who rostered him. And he still just got 4x his salary. So for me, it was like, okay, I will bite the bullet on not playing Clyde Edward Tillaire at high ownership and hope he disappoints as he typically does. And so for me, it was like, well, if I'm not playing Clyde Edward Tillaire, and I'm targeting tournament winning scores, I have to get up to these slightly pricier running backs. No one was super expensive, but these slightly pricier running backs. If I want to take some certainty at wide receiver outside of my stacks and target that first place finish, I have to get up to this Jefferson and Metcalf tier where also I have the added bonus that they're going to be really low owned. They're going to be low owned as a combo, which significantly increases my chances of that first place finish. And so my sacrifice on that particular slate ends up being at the quarterback-led stacks with these cheaper wide receivers. 
And so the way that I did that was I said, Trevor Lawrence, there's a lot we don't know, right? Like we know that he is supposedly a generational talent. We know that he's looked bad his first couple weeks. We know that Urban Meyer has looked in over his head his first couple of weeks, but we also know he's going to be chasing points against Arizona. We know that there's a ton of targets for Marvin Jones and LaVisca. So I'll go there. Justin Fields, I talked last week that I didn't want to play him. I expected him to be super highly owned and it was going to be an easy fade for me. But once his ownership was coming in so low, two, 3%, well, with his legs and his weapons, Allen Robinson and Darnell Mooney, he's going to hit a 26 to 30 point score more than 2% of the time. So I end up with a Justin Fields and Darnell Mooney stack. Again, just saying, hey, look, here's a low-priced combo that could blow up for 45 to 50 points, and it's allowing me to get this 31.2-point score from Najee Harris, where there's a little bit more certainty. This 23.7-point score from DeAndre Swift, this 22.7-point score from Austin Eckler, this 29.8 from Jefferson, 25.7 from Metcalf. And same thing with Goff. We're expecting... Ravens are missing all these guys on defense. Ravens, we expect them to score points. Detroit had given up 38 plus points in four straight games. And now they're playing Lamar Jackson. So we expect good things there. That one didn't materialize. None of these materialized, right? And then as as Hilo highlighted last week, as I talked about last week, there's just a lot of unknowns with this Atlanta offense. They played really tough competition. The Giants aren't a bad defense, but they're not a good defense. So it was like, hey, maybe this is the spot where we see the Atlanta offense take off. Daniel Jones can definitely do damage against the Atlanta defense. And so let me go here. And so I basically put my chips into all these buckets saying, these are the keys that are unlocking what I feel are the more certain spots on the slate. So I took on some uncertainty at my quarterback-led stacks with the thinking being, look, I'm not just randomly throwing darts at these cheaper quarterbacks. I am saying, what is a spot where this guy's going to be passing and his pass catchers are cheap and we know where the targets are going and we have potential for these scores to be big, right? So then if I end up getting 50 points from Justin Fields and Darnell Mooney instead of like 10 points or fewer, and I add that to these higher scores at wide receiver and running back, now I'm in really good shape. Now I'm on path for a first place finish. If Trevor Lawrence throws three touchdown passes and all of them go to Marvin Jones and LaVisca Chenault, and I'm picking up 65 to 70 points from this cheap three-player combo, now I'm on path for that first place finish because I was able to unlock these other guys. So it's important that we don't get into a rut in our thinking and just think, okay, here's the way I build, here's the way I approach things. It's week by week. And that's what's great about NFL. We have the time every week to sort of examine the slate. And again, what I encourage you to do is think through these things on your own and then use that baseline of, okay, here is what I think. Here's my foundation of how I'm seeing things and build from there, taking in what what I'm saying, what Hilo's saying, what Zandamir is saying, what Mike's saying, what everybody on OWS is saying, what you're hearing in Discord to say, look, I'm not changing everything I'm seeing about the slate. I'm just saying, here's my starting point. I have a firm idea of what my starting point is. And now I can pull in extra pieces of information. I can expand my thoughts here. I can shrink my thoughts over here uh, to figure out what is the best path to first place that week for your build. So this last week, it was a very unique week in that I decided, hey, the best path is taking on some uncertainty at these quarterback-led stacks in order to take on where I feel that there is more certainty and especially at wide receiver, not only certainty, but a big strategic advantage in these low-owned DK Metcalf, Justin Jefferson uh, combo plays or one-off plays and hope that that opens up the door for a big score. So 
ended up not working out this last week. And as I said last week, you know, after the first two weeks, I had cashed 40% of my rosters. And I was kind of disappointed about that, not because I wish I'd cashed more, a larger percent, but because I wish I'd cashed a smaller percent because I had all these rosters kind of just over the cut line, you know, just barely cashing. And so I preferred this last week where eight rosters, eight out of eight didn't cash because I felt like, okay, I took some swings that could have led to a first place finish where we say, look, I unlocked these higher priced scores that I was trying to unlock. And so if the guys I used to unlock them had hit, now I'm in great shape. Um, The one regret that I had from this last weekend was, well, two regrets. One was spreading things out too thin. So you guys know that my background from years ago was as a single entry player. And so it would have been better for me to say, look, I'm going to go four rosters on Trevor Lawrence, one on Kyler Murray to play from the other side of this game, and then three with Stafford. Or I'm going to go three Daniel Jones, two Matt Ryan, and just build around this game, and then three with Stafford. So instead of spreading things out into all these different spots, that would have allowed me to, because I also spread things out at running back. Like I had some running backs who didn't hit. I had some wide receivers who didn't hit. So I had kind of things spread out at every level of my play. And it's better to have, if you're going to say, look, I am going with these cheap quarterbacks in order to get to these other guys. So really it was the Seattle and Minnesota receivers were the only ones that I focused dedicatedly on. And then I kind of, you know, this running back on two rosters, this running back on three, this running back on two, this running back on three, uh, and then a bunch of other wide receivers that I did a similar thing with. And so it would have been better to say, I'm going to bet on this game. And if this game hits, and my Seattle and Minnesota wide receivers hit, now I've got a great shot at first place because now I'm mixing and matching these running backs from there. But I was mixing and matching too many different things on too small a number of rosters, on eight rosters, where basically I just kind of needed to get lucky with everything coming together just right on one roster instead of setting myself up for if I get this bet right and this bet right, now I'm in great shape for first place because now I'm mixing and matching these different running backs on these very similar builds. That brings us to the Stafford thing. And uh, also what was my oversight on the Josh Allen thing. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why we, you know, have expanded the way that we're doing the NFL edge. And we brought in Poppy and we brought in Mike and, and obviously brought in Hilo last year was because one of the things that I was good at in the past and that was really the most valuable thing I was able to provide to readers, subscribers, whatever, was being able to think through these games at a coaching level and say, not what is the matchup and not what does the projection system say, but legitimately what is a coach going to do in this spot and how do we use that information to help us? And so you can't run against Tampa. There are teams that try There are teams that go in, the Patriots are probably going to do it on Sunday night this next week. They're probably going to try to establish the run and they're going to fall down 14 to nothing before they finally decide, oh, okay, we can't run in this matchup. Sean McVay is not going to do that. Sean McVay is going to say, look, we can't run against Tampa, but we've got Matthew Stafford and they've got this above average, slightly above average secondary for Tampa, right? Like let's attack that secondary all game and know that we're going to put up points. And so with that in mind, that's my kind of regret was that I wish I'd had three Stafford rosters and then again, concentrated things on these cheap, cheap quarterback led stacks in other spots uh, with, you know, one game or with one quarterback or whatever it might've been just understanding that this, 
Rams offense, I've already said you could probably stack in any matchup this season and it would be plus EV because in tough matchups, the ownership is going to be lower and their chances of hitting is going to be higher than the ownership thinks. And so that was one regret, regret was that I did not just bet on this Rams offense that was so obviously just going to play through the air. But take that over to Josh Allen. And so when Scott and I were talking yesterday, Scott was saying, you know, the, the Bills are 17-point favorites this week against the Texans, are they going to do the same thing? Are they just going to keep passing deep into the game? And what I said was, you know, that Washington matchup is so unique because that front seven and especially that front four of Washington is so fierce that if you're this Bills team that doesn't run the ball anyway, why would you expect them to have a 15-point lead, a 20-point lead in the third quarter and start running the ball? And just go three and out, what go three and out and punt it and put your defense back on the field. So when you have a spot like that where it's going to be difficult to run and you're running out the clock, well, the way you're going to run out the clock is by continuing to pass. And it was why we targeted Buccaneers games so heavily two years ago when it was back and forth between Jameis and Fitzpatrick was because the Bucs were always going to be trailing and the team that was ahead was never going to run the ball to run out the clock. They were just going to keep passing because if you run the ball, you just immediately give the ball back to the other team. And so thinking through those things at that level and saying, okay, yeah, the game environment for Josh Allen isn't conducive to him continuing to pass deep into the game. But if you think about it at the next level deeper, what are the Bills going to call when they're up 20 points? Are they going to go three and out running the ball or are they going to just keep passing? We saw that they kept passing. That also would have opened things up to the best way to play this last week, which would have been saying, I will bet on the Bills continuing to pass. And in order to make this stack affordable, rather than going Josh Allen plus Stefan Diggs, I will go Josh Allen and Cole Beasley and Emmanuel Sanders. Cole Beasley put up 20.8 points. Emmanuel Sanders put up 26.4 points. I bring that up because There were, you ready for this, under 5K, there were seven wide receivers. That's it. Seven wide receivers who topped 15 points on the entire week. 13 game slate, seven wide receivers under 5K topped 15 points. Uh, Or I should say seven wide receivers who we could have, who had a role coming into the week, who we could have even remotely considered. And one of those is kind of fringy. That's Deshaun Jackson, who put up 24 points, uh, five targets, three catches, 120 yards and a touchdown. And he's been playing, I think, like 15 to 20, sometimes 25 snaps a game. So that's not one that you're really going to go out of your way to target. Another one was Jalen Waddell, who I had on two or three of my builds. We highlighted him last week. We knew the reasons why he was a sharp play with plenty of upside uh, and should have had plenty of usage, which he did, 13 targets and 17.8 points. A Hunter Renfro in that same game, that's a tough one to target, right? It's good to look at these things and say, was it was that something I overlooked or was that something that I could have seen heading into the week? Well, Hunter Renfro, we know that every once in a while he's going to have these heavier target games, but we also know the Raiders are going to spread the ball around. Uh, A.J. Green, so we bet on Rondell Moore last week. We bet on Christian Kirk. Christian Kirk did end up hitting. Um, but A.J. Green, the way you bet on A.J. Green in that spot is by basically saying that you're not betting on A.J. Green. You're betting on the Cardinals' offense. Uh, Jacoby Myers was another one, not one that we would ever have wanted to target or that would have been plus EV over time to target. And then Cole Beasley and Emmanuel Sanders. So basically we see that 
we were able to highlight Waddle. We're able to throw Renfro and Jacoby out as guys who really wouldn't be plus EV to target anyway. And then the rest of these are bets on an offense. Deshaun Jackson would have just been, hey, I'm betting on the Rams. And if you're playing 150 entries, you probably have some Deshaun Jackson rosters. I even considered Van Jefferson last week for my eight rosters, just saying, hey, what's a player from the Rams who could go for a big game that nobody's going to be on? You bet on the Rams offense that brings you into considering Deshaun Jackson in some spots. Uh, Cubs fan has been so heavy into NFTs in the offseason that uh, I don't know how heavily he's been playing DFS yet, but that's the type of play that you would see on 15 or 20 out of 150 Cubs fans rosters is Deshaun Jackson, because you're not going out of your way to say, who's the random player who could have a big game? You're saying, look, I'm going to bet everybody's betting on this game. Everybody's betting on this game environment. Who's the player from this game? that everybody's going to be so surprised when they have the huge game. Nobody's rostering him, but it makes a lot of sense in retrospect. Deshaun Jackson. Uh, A.J. Green, again, betting on an offense, betting on a game environment. Cole Beasley and Emmanuel Sanders betting on an offense, betting on a game environment. So those guys ended up being paired with, outside of uh, Deshaun Jackson, the other ones ended up being paired with expensive quarterbacks. But that's what I was after with the cheaper quarterbacks last week was – What I want is not to try to individually select the cheaper wide receiver who can get those points, but instead say, here's a game environment, here's an offense that I can bet on, and through betting on that offense, I can expose myself to these cheaper wide receiver points. And that's typically the way that we're going to get those cheaper wide receiver points, the way we're going to unlock these higher price guys that we are wanting to get to. Okay. We're not going to make it 45 minutes, but uh, I'll try to keep this to about 20 so that we'll have 50 minutes total and then be able to get to questions. So speaking of pricing, there was a conversation on Twitter this last week where I'll actually, uh, I've got it pulled up. And so before I get into this, I want to make it clear that, and in fact, I'll give this as background. Yesterday on on Scott's podcast with me, he pulled up a tournament winning roster. And I forget what tournament it was, but it's something that has thousands of entries. And it was a tournament winning roster. And he wanted us to kind of critique it. And it did a lot of things differently than what we were talking about. It had very little correlation, had a lot of one-offs, and had to get a lot of things right. And yet it got first place. So the idea, like, I'm not going to take a roster that got first place and say, this person is doing things wrong. The idea isn't right or wrong, right? The idea is mathematically maximizing our chances of a first place finish. You can get a first place finish without having taken approach, taken an approach that mathematically maximizes your chances of that first place finish. So what we've talked about in the past is the one thing that can be really fatal about those first place finishes when you didn't mathematically maximize your chances of a first place finish is now you are in this little uh, self-enclosed echo chamber where you have notched a first place finish with a suboptimal approach. And you are going to be convinced that that is the optimal approach. You're going to continue playing that way. Close off your mind to any other thoughts that might say, well, sure, you got a first place finish playing that way, but your mathematical chances of a first place finish were lower than if you had played this way. And if you had played this way, you wouldn't have gotten first place that week but you would get first place more times in other weeks. And so that's one of the most dangerous things is to take down a big weekend, take down a first place finish with a suboptimal approach because you're going to then continue that suboptimal 
approach. Now, one thing I said to Scott about that lineup that finished first place was, you know, the guy had the, the roster had players across the board who could go for 30 plus points. And that's an important thing too, is, Hey, at least you're getting upside everywhere. But this conversation the other day was I posted on Twitter, uh, Derek Henry. And I said, the points required this week to pay off his DraftKings salary, 34 ish points required this week to hurt you. If you don't have him 40 ish, and then I laid out his points in games that Darius Leonard had played for the Colts. Uh, it was four games under 20 points, uh, one game of 28.6, and then his big 41 and a half point game. So one person said 34 is to pay off salary, 40 is to hurt you. What kind of Scooby-Doo math is that? So I said, if you follow me, you probably know this, but just in case, cashing in term- tournaments is pointless. First place is the goal. 220 plus points is typically required. A pricey player that gets you 3x his salary and your chances of a first place finish practically disappear. If they get 4x, you're in good shape, but it's not a required score in order to win that week. So there was some more back and forth with some other people. And then one guy stepped up to tell me how dumb I was for saying these things and uh, tell me that he'd gotten a first place finish, basically taking a very different approach. So his first place finish now, and and I'll say this, I'm pretty convinced that this player and I actually agree and that he was unwilling to back down on what he was saying because he followed up by saying, basically I said, you don't roster cheap player hoping for 10 points because if you do, you close off so many of your paths the first place. And he volleyed back by saying, well, I did in fact roster KJ Hamler last week, hoping for 10 points. And he was on my first place uh, roster, which Mike Johnson and I were talking about after you say nobody rosters KJ Hamler for 10 points. You roster him because he's a speedy player with big play upside who can go for five catches, 125 yards and a touchdown. That's the reason you roster KJ Hamler. If you're rostering a guy for 10 points, you take the slot receiver if, who has a short area role. If you're rostering a, a boom bust player in that cheaper price range, as we've talked about, these cheaper wide receivers tend to either be short area guys who just are floor plays or the big play threats who have a low floor, but a high ceiling. And that's what you play KJ Handler for. Uh, but the guy I was talking to was also, he'd won the game changer, which is $1,500 entry and typically a hundred to 200 entries. So the style of play for a 100 to 200 entry tournament is very different. As we talk about a lot is very different from the style of play required for even a 500 entry tournament, but especially a thousand, 2000 entries, 5,000 entries and so on and so forth. So he asked me the question, if player X who costs over 8K, or I said, if if player X costs over 8K, will score exactly 26 points. um, He had said, would you play him? Player costs over 8K. And I think he used Tyree Kill as the example, and they're going to score exactly 26 points. And you know this before games start. Would you play him? And I said, it depends on a lot of factors, but almost certainly no. And, and he thought that was absurd. And he was saying raw points matters. You know, it's better to get 3x or 3.5x from an expensive player and get 26 points than to get 6x from a cheap guy, a 3k guy, and get 18 points. Well, that's true in retrospect. That's true after games kick off. And that's why I say that once games kick off, salary no longer matters. And that should be our mindset 
insofar as once games kick off, you need everybody on your roster to have that 25 to 30 point upside. But heading into games, if you head into a game and say, well, I'm going to take this guy, we talked about it with cheap tight ends. I'm going to take this guy who can only get me 10 or 12 points if everything goes just right. You're now mathematically closing off a lot of your paths to first place because you not only need him to get those 10 to 12 points and everything to go right for that player, but now you need your expensive guys to all hit in order to get that big first place finish. So I would encourage you to write this down or play this back because this is an important point to keep in mind. And that is that salary is not totally arbitrary. Salary is not totally arbitrary. DraftKings is very good at pricing. And that's important to keep in mind. Because if we're concerned with ceiling, and if DraftKings is good at pricing, then trying to get, let's say like this, let's say you need 226 points to win a tournament. And let's say you tie up 8K in salary on a 26-point score. And this isn't saying, uh, uh, like, it's fine to take Devontae Adams and he gets you 26 points, but that's not what you're rostering for. This is why we use the DeAndre Hopkins example. If DeAndre Hopkins and Devontae Adams are both in a good matchup and they're priced next to each other and their ownership is similar, why would you take DeAndre Hopkins, who in this offense is going to have a tremendously difficult time getting over 30, 31, 32 points when Devontae Adams can go for 44, 45, right? So maybe one week Devontae Adams gets 22 DeAndre Hopkins gets 29, and everybody who rostered DeAndre, DeAndre Hopkins did better that week. But over time, if you're capping your upside, especially on these higher-priced guys, you're making things so much more difficult for yourself because DraftKings is good at pricing. So if you spend 8K and you get 26 points, you now have you have to get your other 200 points from 42K in salary. So now ask that question again, the 3K guy who scores 18 points. And now you need to get, we said you need to get 226 to win this tournament. So now you need to get 208 more points, but you have 47K in salary to work with. Your chances of that first place finish are going to be higher, especially because this 3K guy is probably lower owned as well, which is obviously another thing to be thinking about. But by understanding how good DraftKings is at pricing, it helps us to better understand what we need to do with our salary and what we need to be targeting in different salary ranges. So what he was saying after the fact, as far as, look, getting raw points is tremendously important. Getting 28 points from Derrick Henry, if that's the best running back score on the slate, it, it doesn't matter if you pen. I, I wouldn't care if I spent 10K. If I if 28 points got me eight more points than any other running back got. Yeah, like that separation. That's why the conversation around Travis Kelsey is always so interesting because his ceiling at 8K is, is he can hit the random 40-point game, but realistically, spending 8K on Kelsey versus spending 8K on one of these 8K running backs or 8K wide receivers, it exposes you to fewer points more often than not, but the positional advantage where everybody has to play at least one tight end and everybody else is probably getting eight points, nine points, seven points, 10 points, 12 points at tight end, and you get 25 from Kelsey, that's a huge advantage. Those raw points, that separates you from everybody who didn't have him. 
So sure, if you could say, well, Derrick Henry's going to score 28 and and no other running backs are going to score more than 20. Yeah, I don't care what I'm paying for him. I'll, I'll get him. But we don't know that heading into the games. And so heading into the games, we have to understand that we need to expose it's a, you know, take the poker terminology of how many outs do you have? And you need to give yourself as many outs as possible. You need every player on your roster to have that type of upside, that 30, 40 point upside where you can get it to understand that. Yes, it's not about it's not about salary multipliers. It's about and it's not even about raw points. In fact, there's another thing that, that you could write down is it's not about points. It's about paths to first place. It's never about points. It's about paths to first place. And so understanding that, yes, raw points is far more important than salary multipliers. Once games kick off, all that matters is raw points. Once games kick off, if I spent 4K on a guy and he gets me six points, I'm not celebrating because he got 4X salary. And I'm not saying, oh man, I should have won because this guy got me 4X salary and kept me on a 200 point pace. That's not how we think once games kick off, but that's how we have to think when we're building our rosters, because we have to think about where can we get the most possible points? Where can we expose ourselves to the most upside possible? And this is why for years I said, do not use projections. Projections are crippling. And then we put together the GPP ceiling tool where we can actually see ceiling projections. And it's like, okay, now this is how you use projections because you need to understand what a player can do when things go right, not just what a player's median score is going to be. So recognizing that the way we piece together our rosters based on salary is important primarily because DraftKings is really good at pricing. So once we grasp that, we start to understand that taking on, uh, and so I'll actually, I'll close it off by saying this. If you get a player who, and, and the, the larger the tournament size, the more this matters. So again, the guy who I was having this discussion with, he'd won the game changer. So a much smaller field tournament where the a smaller field single entry tournament where the approach to it is very different, specifically because it's a $1,500 entry. And a lot of players are stretching themselves beyond they should be playing to play in the game changer, which has them playing more scared, which has them playing safer. And so, you know, you can be, you can be sharp and safe and kind of blow past a lot of these rosters in that tournament style. But as you get to larger tournaments, you have to think about, again, what mathematically maximizes my shot at a first place finish. Well, if I spend eight, if there's a 10,000 entry tournament and I have spent 8K on a player who gets me 25 points, there is a massive mathematical probability that one of the other 9,999 rosters has spent that 8K in salary in a more optimal manner. So now I need to be that much better with my other 42K in salary where DraftKings pricing is really good, where DraftKings pricing is really efficient. And so it becomes that much more difficult for me to get that first place finish because 500 entry tournament yeah, there's probably somebody else who's building a better roster than you just tying up eight can salary for 26 points. 200 entry tournament, uh, you know, you, there's a blurry line there. 1,000 entry tournament, 1,500 entry tournament. Like, just start thinking about that. Think, okay, if I get 26 points for eight can salary, what are the chances that one of these other 1,500 rosters spent their salary better? 
got something better than I did. So when we're thinking about first place and we're thinking about the tournaments that we're in, and we think about DraftKings pricing being really sharp, we recognize that we need to be thinking consciously about what types of scores we're targeting in different price ranges, thinking about what those scores get us from a positional advantage, which is really only quarterback and tight end where we get those positional advantages. Uh, Defense as well, although obviously defense is so high variance that we don't think about defense in those terms. Uh, So tight end and quarterback are the really only the only places where we get the positional advantages and quarterback scoring is typically pretty clumped up. Uh, And so tight end and then otherwise you're just thinking about where is my salary getting me the most bang for the buck? Understanding that that's an important way to be thinking through things as you're heading into the slate. Even if once games kick off, you now say, okay, you guys go out there and play and hopefully all of you get me 30 plus points, regardless of what I paid in salary for you. Uh, But as you're going in, you have to be thinking about what a player costs and how you're allocating that salary to understand what gives you your best shot at a first place finish. So we will actually, we did pretty good 45 minutes. We will uh, wrap up this week's lecture there. And Aaron, I'm going to turn it over to you for any questions that we have this week. And I did not get a chance to read questions this week. So I get to go into these blindly. All right, let's go. Um, We got three from ACS 204. Um, Question one, looking at defense ownership from the past week, once you get past the seven most highly owned teams on the main slate, so seven out of the 26 teams, um, they were all sub 3%. Uh, Giving that defense is the most volatile position, what are your thoughts in a small field, single entry or three max, um, 2,000, 5,000 entries on playing a chalky lineup and using a low-owned defense as a way to differentiate. Would that be good enough to get to first place? No. Um, so what did we say for entry size there? So 2,000 to 5,000. Okay, so that's still a lot of rosters to beat. A lot of rosters to beat. And chalk isn't always going to hit. And so if you just go chalky, now you're kind of clumped up with everybody And I'll say it like this. Defense is high variance, but let's look at last week's highest scoring defenses. The Cardinals. The Cardinals scored 20 points. That was one of the main defenses that we highlighted. That was Hilo's favorite defense last week, I believe. The Saints, 20 points. The only reason I didn't play the Saints, I kept coming back to the Saints. The only reason I didn't play the Saints was because they were on the road against Mac Jones instead of at home against Mac Jones. Uh, Patriots are a team that wants to run the ball and you can't run against the Saints. You just can't. And so now you're in a position where the Patriots are going to have to open things up, pass through the air. They're going to have to be one-dimensional with a rookie quarterback who's a very smart and and not super talented, arm talent, et cetera, quarterback, but just a very, very good rookie quarterback in terms of the way he processes and sees the field. But you're still talking about a one-dimensional quarterback, one-dimensional offense going against a really good defense next one was the broncos who cost 4.3 k and were still one of the more popular defenses they scored 19 points at home against zach wilson the jets next one was the browns who even though they cost 3200 we went all the way up to them on the bottom up build uh 16 points from the brown next one was the Bengals who scored 12 points they were super cheap the only reason we didn't use them on the bottom up build was because we wanted to talk about game theory and we wanted to get to a more expensive defense saying hey look if everybody had a 44k salary cap a lot of people would be going down to the Bengals." so we say that defense is high variance but you also don't get massive defensive scores from mediocre 
or bad defenses. A lot of times you'll actually see a bad defense score a defensive touchdown and still get only eight or nine fantasy points because they don't get any sacks and that's their only turnover that they force. And so uh, that was why the the Titans being super popular last week, I felt was a big edge because they're just not a good defense. So it's really hard for a good defense to put up a huge score. You know, they need multiple touchdowns to put up a huge score. Whereas a team that gets a lot of sacks forces a lot of turnovers. It's basically just what I'm getting at is defense is higher variance than the other positions, but it's still more predictable than just saying, hey, let's just take a random defense that nobody's on. Um, And so there are some strategy angles to play, but I would focus on it more in like super large field. I've seen Bales do this a decent amount where he takes kind of a mediocre defense, but against a team in large field tournaments against an offense that everybody's focused on stacking. So then you get that one-two punch of like, if this offense, if this defense has a big game, that means this offense is failing and you're probably hurting 60 to 70% of rosters and have at least some exposure to this offense. And you're getting these defense points that nobody's getting. That's the only place where I would say, yeah, I see the strategy of going to just like a mediocre defense. Um, but no, yeah, you there's one of the things you talked about, I think it was last week or it was two weeks ago when Mike Johnson hopped on when he laid out the number of points, you know, required to win these the the spy and the power sweep, which are three entry max and, and single entry with about five thousand entries. The score required to win those is only about 10 points lower on average last year than the score required to win the slant, which is like 50,000 entries. So you still need to get these super high scores. You still need to be differentiated to get to that first place finish. And uh, Hilo has said that that's, he said it on Saturday night. That's one of the main reasons he focuses so heavily on three entry max is because the edge is even bigger. Because in three entry max, you have more people who are just playing things safe and fewer people who are bringing in all these concepts we talk about. So uh, yeah, I would, I, I mean, I think that the question is super sharp as far as like finding different angles to get to that first place finish, but it's not one that I would recommend just because defense, it, like good defenses in good matchups are, they're not as bankable as like a good running back in a good matchup with good volume, but uh, it is more bankable than just saying, hey, let me take the defense nobody's on and use that as my differentiator. All right. Second one from ACS204. I have been exclusively playing wide receiver in the flex. This past week, there were a number of winning lineups, including Millie with a running back in the flex. How do you think about running back versus wide receiver in the flex? It's different every week, obviously, uh, but Generally speaking, so when when I was focused primarily on those bankroll building tournaments, I was primarily focused on running back in the flex. And when we talk about bankroll building tournaments, we're really optimally talking about uh, contests of like 500 entries or fewer, or if it's like a thousand entries or even 1500 entries, at least single entry. And with a flatter payout structure, and those are the ones that I tell you, you know, just scroll down in the DraftKings lobby and find those ones. It's like 100 entries with, you know, there's random ones that nobody knows exists that are, I don't know, like, for example, maybe a $12 entry, 100 entries, and not super top heavy payout structure. So those are the uh, the types of ones where I would be likely to play a running back in the flex. Or for like three years, all I focused on was the game changer. Uh, and played against the same people in there every week, and I knew how they were going to play. I knew how to outmaneuver them, and I would take on that extra certainty of a running back in the flex because running backs are more likely to hit their floor than a wide receiver, right? Because wide receiver, so much more needs to break their way. But a, a huge game from a wide receiver is 
typically going to give you a higher ceiling. Now, the NFL is always changing, right? So when we had, that was also when it was more of a focus on running back in the flex was like the David Johnson, Le'Veon Bell, Todd Gurley, where you could have all these guys who could go for 30 plus points. And for a while they were underpriced. Like David Johnson was under 6K for several weeks back then. We really didn't see running back pricing. The only player who was ever priced above 8K at running back was Adrian Peterson and he didn't catch passes and he would be like 20% owned because because there were you know there was a lot more bad DFS play back then and it was like you guys are really paying 8k for this guy who doesn't catch passes and you know every once in a while gets you a 25 point game uh but the once we got to the like the David Johnson the Le'Veon Bells and they were under 7k and then they got up over 7k and it was like oh man can we still play these guys and Levitan coined the team jam them in thing but at that time they were still like 7K, 7,500, 7,800. Now we see those running back price tags all the time. But back then it made a lot more sense to put a running back in the flex because the scoring was pretty safe. The floor was pretty safe. And the ceiling was just as high as what you could get at wide receiver because these guys were also catching passes uh, and they were underpriced. But now, you know, we're talking about PPR scoring. There's so many timeshare backfields and the ones that aren't timeshare backfields are either guys like Derrick Henry who are still pretty one-dimensional roles or it's guys like Christian McCaffrey who are so expensive that it's not like you're putting Christian McCaffrey and Dalvin Cook onto a roster too often uh, and then still fitting a running back in the flex that's going to give you a better shot at first place. So every week is going to be a little bit different. Uh, This last week, I'd say it was more a function of just the way scoring fell, right? Like So looking at this list of the highest scores from last week, again, there was only one, two, there was only two wide receivers who scored 30-plus uh, there's only one running back who scored 30 plus, but there were only one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven wide receivers in 13 games, 11 wide receivers who topped 20 points. That's crazy, right? Like that's not going to happen every week. And the highest wide receiver score was 36.2. And Cooper Cup was the only other one who topped 30 points. So it was just more a function of this last week. And there's going to be there are going to be weeks when a running back in the flex wins. But a wide receiver in the flex is going to win more often in large field tournaments just because we're talking because of a the nature of the way all these different backfields are run right now, uh, b the fact that it's PPR scoring, and c the fact that it's easier for so when a running back gets uh, the ball, right? He's clumped up with everybody the the defensive line, the linebackers, the safeties are still back there, the cornerbacks are chasing him down, so it's a lot harder for a running back to bust off like a 70-yard touchdown than it is for a wide receiver to bust off a 70-yard touchdown. Busted coverage, and that's all it takes. Uh, or, you know, cornerback falls down, that's all it takes. And so the um, the upside is typically going to be higher targeting that wide receiver in the flex, especially when we get down to you got to fill out a whole roster, right? And so with pricing being sharp, a lot of times you got to put in one or two kind of lower-priced guys, and the 4K wide receiver is a lot likelier to get you a 30-point game and the 4K running back, because the 4K wide receiver is typically going to be the Deshaun Jackson type guy who has the downfield role, a low floor, but a high ceiling. So um, every week, I, you know, I, I'm not tied to only playing wide receivers in the flex. I will play around with every roster construction. But for me, it's always kind of thinking about how to maximize my points and maximize my potential points. And so more often than not, in this you know, if you're listening to this in 2023, the answer might be different. But right now in 2021, with the way that pricing shakes out and the way that these offenses are all built wide receiver in the flex is going to win tournaments more often. That doesn't mean that it's going to win every single week. 
just to add to that a little bit, I know there was some discussion in Discord about tight end in the flex this week since you had Pitts, Hawkinson, Andrews, and Higby kind of all within that 5K range to even down to 4K, I think Higby was. Any thoughts on situations like that where we're getting somewhat cheap pricing for high usage tight ends like that? So the thing with tight end is what, what I talked about earlier with Kelsey is it's more about the positional advantage. And so it's rare that the, okay, like let's look at this. Um, Deshaun, we'll throw Deshaun Jackson out, but uh, because we couldn't really target him, but uh, Jamar Chase, 5.4 K scored 22.5 points. Um, Cole Beasley, 4.8 K scored 20.8 points. Christian Kirk, 5.4 K scored 20.4 points. AJ Green, 4.5 K scored 19.2 points. Um, it's going to be way more rare that these 5K tight ends score 20 plus points. And so where the advantage really comes is the fact that most weeks, most tight ends are going to fail. So if you get the guy, whether he's Travis Kelsey or whether he's TJ Hawkinson at 5K, if you get the guy who outscores all the other tight ends, you gain a big edge. But getting two of those guys, right now you've spent 10K in salary on a couple guys who are probably capped at 20 points. Whereas every week, or most weeks, we didn't see it this last week, but most weeks, one of these you know, 4,500 to 5K wide receivers is going to score 30 points. So it's that's why Hilo always says like it's almost never statistically optimal to play a tight end in the flex. Uh, so I just kind of stick with that and don't ever really look for the weeks where it might be optimal this week. Um, the, I guess the one place where you could make a greater case is in really small field tournaments, but, um, but yeah, generally speaking, I just kind of adhere to the no tight end in the flex rule with that thinking in mind, like you give away the, uh, positional edge of getting the big score. If you put them in the flex, 20 points from a 5K tight end in the flex isn't the same as 20 points from a 5K tight end in your tight end slot. I mean, that's just just the the way it works out because there's going to be a better way to spend that salary at another position. All right, last question from ACS. Um, I hate playing highly owned punt wide receivers, but sometimes they're in the game stacks I want. Thoughts on pivoting to lower owned punt wide receivers than the one in the game I'm stacking. So one of the things to think about is your total ownership. So let's say a, a cheap wide receiver is 15% owned, but how highly owned is that guy's quarterback? You know, like let's just take an example, but let's say 5%. So now the most number of rosters that could have this quarterback plus this cheap wide receiver is 5%. And that would be if everybody who played that quarterback also had that wide receiver. Then you add in this other wide receiver who, you know, your quarterback and two wide receivers. And let's say this other wide receiver is 5% owned. Well, not everybody has this quarterback and both wide receivers, right? Basically you're like, getting this three player stack for probably under 1% owned as in, in a hundred entry tournament, you know, you're probably the only person with all three guys in a thousand entry tournament. There are probably under 10 rosters with all three guys. And so 
you're no longer worried about the fact that one piece in that stack is 15% owned because you're building him into something that is much lower owned. And how does that player have a big game? Probably in this game environment you're betting on. So you're actually betting on the points that are probably coming along with that guy having a big game and you're getting it at much lower ownership. So I would, we want to be cautious about pivoting off of a, a popular guy to a lesser play just to get lower ownership. So it, it, a, you're going to have to have some chalk on rosters to, you know, because chalk is typically decently sharp these days. And so you're going to have some chalk on most of your rosters anyway. So that's not a bad place to eat chalk if, if you're building around the game environment. But even more importantly, you have now effectively lowered the ownership there. And so you don't have to worry about that player's individual ownership because you just have uh, the low ownership that your competition is not getting. So yeah, I wouldn't worry about it. And I would just say if, if, if he's a quote punt wide receiver, if he's a cheap wide receiver and you're stacking that offense, you've done everything you need to do there. Your ownership is already lowered. All right. This question comes from begin 486. How do you approach balancing game stacks, correlated pairings and one-offs when constructing a roster? I'm usually playing DK three max contests between 2,000 and 3,000 entries. For me, every week is different. So it's all, I mean, you guys see that in the player grid, like the, the shape of the player grid, the focus of the player grid is different every week, depending on what the slate gives me. And so Optimally, you want to give yourself as few things as possible that you need to get right in order to get all nine spots on your roster right. So that's where game stacks and correlations and so on and so forth really help a lot. That's also where we talked about uh, our first segment in here when I broke down that game changer win I had last year um, on Thanksgiving, where there were only two games to choose from. And I scored over 200 points because two teams happened to score 40 plus points. And that's where I was focusing my rosters. The idea of the game stack is not to hope this team scores 25 points, right? Like the over-under is 50 and this team's Vegas by team total is 24 and a half. Well, if they get to 24 and a half, that's not winning you a tournament. You're just saying, hey, the the over-under here is 50. So the chances of this shooting out for 65 to 70 points, the chances are higher in this game than in the game with the 40-point total. But that's optimally what you're targeting. You're, you're, you're targeting that, or ultimately what you're targeting, you're targeting that that game that can hopefully go for just a huge score. Um, and that's where you get sort of all the points. So some weeks there are like, we'll run into some weeks this year where there's no games with an over under above 50. And so I might be less focused on game stacks in there. I might have more one-offs in there. Other weeks, there might be one game with a super high total and, uh, you know, one offense in that game that is more concentrated. And I will know that the field is going to kind of stack both sides, but I'm going to stack this one side because it's more concentrated and it has the higher shot at hitting. Or like last week, I wasn't focused on the Tampa side because I, I have a lot of respect for the Rams defense and the Bucks are likelier to spread the ball around to random players. Whereas the Rams were going to be passing and they're going against a, a kind of average Tampa secondary. So every week is a little bit different for me, but yeah, it, it's, there's no, like for me, at least there's no clear set of rules, but it's more like 
okay, here are the here are the stacks that I like. Here are the stacks that I think open up paths to first place. Here are the running backs who I think open up a path to first place. Here are the pass catchers who don't belong in a stack, but for whatever reason, usage or matchup or they're underpriced, uh, they're now sort of in my one-off bucket. And then I have all of these kind of laid out in my notebook or in my in my phone notes where it's like, okay, here are the quarterback plus wide receiver pairings and here are the game stacks, right? Like the build arounds. Here are the blue chips and the bonus pieces that are sort of floating around those. Here are the running backs, you know, the wide receivers. And then you figure out, okay, so I guess I'll say it like this. It's like, it's it's the funnel that we talk about. You start the week with a broad funnel. You're not blocking anything out, closing off any paths yet. But as you go through the week, you start figuring out, okay, this game environment is good over here. Uh, this wide receiver, I really like his setup from like a volume plus matchup plus game environment standpoint, but there's no reason to really build around this whole game, but we'll pull this wide receiver in. Um, so like last week, a good example, I wasn't building around the Steelers game, but I had like three Najee Harris rosters and one Chase Claypool roster just saying like, okay, Deontay Johnson's out. They're going to be passing a lot. Where's the volume going? How are the Steelers going to run this offense? I didn't roster Chase Claypool hoping for nine catches for 96 yards. I rostered him hoping for like seven catches for 150. Right? Like I thought they would use him downfield still. But um, so those guys ended up in the kind of the one-off bucket. But I'm not, I'm not predetermining these things. It's like I go through the week, I figure out what I'm pulling out of the different games after reading the NFL Edge after watching games, after making my notes. And so then I have my player pool. And then from my player pool, I can start figuring out how the rosters get pieced together that particular week. So some weeks I might be betting on only like three total spots on a roster. Other weeks I might be betting on six or seven different games on a roster. So it really depends on the week, but that's kind of the the, the roots of how to answer that for yourself each week is you know start with a broad funnel and read the NFL Edge and pull your player pool out from there and then kind of start comparing like how different pieces fit like what are the way the way i divvy things up as you guys know is you know who are the blue chip plays what are the build around spots whether that's a a game environment that you're going to stack both sides or like a team that you want to build around for whatever reason Uh, and then what are the uh sort of the bonus pieces which are not like the blue chip floating plays but are the additional floating plays that don't fit into your build arounds, but you also want to kind of have these guys that you can pull onto your roster. So uh, Jalen Waddle is another one who's a good example of that from last week where you can say, look, like I'm not betting on the Dolphins offense having a monster game. I don't want to just build a bunch of different ways around this offense, but I know that Jacoby Brissett's going to stick to the short areas of the field. I know that the Raiders will give up these underneath throws. And I know that Waddle has room for a lot of volume here. So that's kind of how you end up with, your different buckets and then you just see how they fit together in that particular week all right this question's from hona peanut it's a question then he gives an example here so how do you recommend building rosters for 20 max four game afternoon slates like we just had so the example he gives is would you pick the second most popular game like seahawks vikings and then have different permutations of the game stacks then able to cycle the rest of your player pools within them or have game stacks from multiple games to cover more bases. He did the former looking for the uh, looking for Vikings Seahawks games to shoot out and thinking the Bucks Ram game would be the most popular game, hoping that the Bucks offense would fail along with the game being lower scoring. 
Did not go exactly as he hoped, but was wondering if this was plus EV way to attack the slate. So I could be, I'll, I'll start by saying this, the like deeper mathematics on this would probably be a better question for Hilo or Blender, try to find Blender in, in Discord at some point. But for me, it really comes down to preference. And obviously every slate's different, but for me, it comes down to preference. And so the approach that you took, the former, which was betting on, hey, look, I'm going to build all 20 around Minnesota, Seattle, and then pull in the other pieces from there as opposed to spreading things out. is basically like saying, hey, look, I'm going to approach this like a single entry player. And I'm going to say, here's my bet. If I'm right on this one bet, I now have a bunch of rosters that are in good shape to finish. If you feel that that is a high probability bet, that is a very sharp way to play it and is the way that I typically prefer to play it. If you feel like you know one bet is as good as the other or you don't really know, you could spread things out or you could say, look, I don't care. I'll still play this like a single entry player. I'll bet on this one this week and next week I'll bet on something else. So think about uh, I'm hoping that you guys are all reading the reflection pieces every week. And one of the gems in there is Sonics above the field. And he takes a fellow mass multi-entry 150 max millimaker player and breaks down their player pool. And so last week he broke down a player pool where the guy had, I think he had like Gronk on all of his rosters, but it was like a huge percentage of his rosters. Now, if Gronk fails, then probably none of that guy's rosters have a shot at first place, right? But if Gronk hits 29 points as he did, now all of this guy's rosters are in great position already, right? Because now you not only have this, this player hitting for a large raw score, but you have the positional advantage where you know most other people aren't getting a big score at tight end. And so now all of your rosters are live because you played it like a single entry player and you got this one bet right. So um, I prefer to play it that way, generally speaking, to find the the bets. So like for me this last week, it was, again, I, w- I wish I had spread things out less. That was what I felt was one of my mistakes as I came out of the week. But one of my bets was like, okay, I'm going to fit, I'm going to prioritize Seattle and Minnesota, primarily Metcalf and Jefferson as many times as I can. And if I'm wrong on that, then I'm not winning first place this week. But if I'm right on that, all eight of my rosters are set up in good shape uh, for that. So yeah, you don't want to, if, if you're going to put in 20 rosters, you don't want to, you know, start out with six spots the same on all 20 of them, because then you might as well not be playing 20 max. But I think it makes a lot of sense to say, like, here's where I feel there's the most certainty. So I'm going to place my chips on these plays if i'm wrong all 20 of my rosters aren't in great shape but if i'm right all of them are live and now i've I've just got to get six spots left or whatever it might be and you know i'm mixing and matching these different things so yeah i think that's a really sharp approach and as, as long as you have the confidence in like what you're identifying as the edge it's it's a great way to play things because it's a little bit more all or nothing but the all weeks are great because you get that bet right and now all of your rosters are in good shape in those spots and you just have to get the rest of the spots right all right this one is from the ice man i know the main focus here is on dk 
but he wants to know if your player pools would be vastly different for FD as opposed to DK. It depends. Different times, yes. Different times, no. But um, from a standpoint of like player scoring, not necessarily, right? Because it's it's half PPR instead of PPR. That's a little bit different. A player like Derrick Henry has a little bit of an extra edge. Uh, it is more touchdown heavy as far as the value of a touchdown is worth more on FanDuel, which touchdowns are the least predictable thing. So again, that introduces more variance, more randomness. Uh, but because there not only is it half PPR instead of full PPR, but also there's no hundred yard bonus. So on DraftKings, if you're playing with a really sharp mindset, like every player I'm putting onto my roster, I'm assessing their chances of getting those extra three points because that's like half a touchdown right there. Uh, so you don't have that on on FanDuel. So the scoring is a little bit different, but it's not so different that it dramatically changes your player pool. Where things start to change is from a pricing structure, because on DraftKings, you have the pricing stretch. Well, different size salary caps, right? So if we're talking about a percentage of salary caps spent, that also is a whole other thing. But on, on DraftKings, you can have a 3K wide receiver. And I think on FanDuel, like outside of, I think it goes down to 4,500 on like total scrubs, but typically like you're paying 5K or more for a guy you might be able to get for, you know, you spend 5,500 on FanDuel, you might be able to spend 3,500 on DraftKings. Um, And so the value of the cheaper guys is not there quite as much. It's another place where technically sharper players have an edge on DraftKings just because they can find value plays with a higher probability of hitting first place. Whereas on FanDuel, if you go to those value plays, you might actually be hurting your roster because pricing is a little bit looser. It's a little bit easier to fit in an all-star lineup. And so if you're going out of your way to take on this cheap guy who basically like the point per dollar matters less, you want to think even more about raw points on FanDuel because you don't have to think about like, oh, well, this guy can only get me 30 points and this other guy can get me 38 points and I'll save some salary here to fit this guy in. Because on FanDuel, you might be able to fit both guys, the guy who can get you 30 and the guy who can get you 38. And you don't have to take on the guy who can get you 23 or 24 to allow you to spend that extra salary. So that's the main place where there's a big difference is the salary spent. And so, yeah, focusing on getting more stars on your roster on FanDuel is one of the most important things to think about and kind of letting go of these value plays a little bit more. And then the other main thing to think about is tight end pricing on FanDuel is much more clumped up. So on DraftKings where Kelsey might cost 8K and these other tight ends might cost 2,500, on FanDuel it's like 5K versus 8K. And so taking the cheap tight end puts you at even more of a disadvantage on FanDuel because it's that much easier to get up to the top tight ends. Uh, So those are the main things that I would think about on on FanDuel and um yeah and I'm hoping that I'm hoping that next year maybe we can you know we we've expanded Xandamir stuff into FanDuel a little bit more and I'm hoping the next year we can start expanding into FanDuel a little bit more as well uh as far as far as from like a strategy perspective. But yeah that's big picture the way I would look at the differences there. So thanks so much for hanging out guys. I really appreciate it. We will see you on Saturday for Xanamir and Hilo's podcast, which has become one of my favorite parts of the week. And uh, we will see you on the site throughout the week. We'll see you at the top of the leaderboards this weekend.